Second Kings tonight, chapter six in our journey through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now and they have Bibles. Just get their attention by waving to them and they'll get one into your hands and you can follow along with your own eyes uh, this evening as we study the Lord's word. We pick things up in 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted his servants, saying, My camp will be in such a such a place. And so at this time in Israel's history, uh, the king of Syria was not interested in a full a uh, military invasion of Israel probably doubted their strength to take it at that point. Um, but they were uh, engaging in border skirmishes and setting up camps on the border, staging uh, centers for military action uh, to then invade small pockets of Israel. And so he would consult with his advisors, his servants, and uh, he would say, all right, my camp will be in such and such a place. They would then set up the camp to begin their military uh, actions. And the Son of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass, or the man of God, rather, speaking of Elisha, sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you don't pass this place where these encampments were, for the Syrians are coming down there. And so Elisha was supernaturally receiving intelligence Uh, From the Lord related to uh, Syria's military actions, he would then inform the king uh, of Israel, telling them not to go there. And the king then would send uh, someone out to the place which Elisha had told him of to, you know, test the intelligence, the military intelligence he was receiving. And uh, and and thus uh, Elisha warned him. And he was watchful there, not just once or twice, but continually. So you put yourself in the shoes of the king of Syria. And uh, each time you're uh, taking this secret military action, supposed to only be known by your advisors, and you're foiled time and again, uh, and it produces exactly the result that it did in his life. And therefore, the heart of the king of Israel was greatly troubled by this thing, his element of surprise out the window. And he called his servants and he said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And so he thinks that because his very private confidential plans are being um, exposed or made known, that somehow he's got a mole within his organization, some kind of a treasonous uh, traitor here among them that is feeding information uh, to Israel. And so he confronts them. You can imagine a fairly tense meeting. And one of his servants, which gives us an idea of how well known Elisha was and God's use of him even beyond the nation of Israel. One of his servants spoke up and said, uh, none, my Lord, none of us is for Israel. None, my Lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, He tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Now, uh, those are about as private a words as you can uh, speak in life. And so uh, he said, Elisha's got supernatural ability to expose your plans. And uh, and he knows the most secret of your conversations uh, in, in light of this revelation. And so he said, Uh, The king said, go and see where he is, this Elisha that is foiling my plans, that I may send and get him and arrest him. And it was told him, saying, surely he is in the city of Dothan. Now, here's an exercise in frustration. You're going to you're going to try and spring a surprise attack on a guy. I'm not talking Italian. That just came out of my mouth. So you're going to. Try and spring a surprise attack attack on um, on him when God is giving him revelation concerning everything that he's doing. I mean, there's no way he's going to be successful. 
but this is what he thinks he needs to do. He wants to really uh, defeat Israel, uh, conquer the king of Israel. And as he looks at it, this this prophet by the name of Elisha is getting in his way. He's got to deal with Elisha and get him out of the way so that he can move forward with his plans. And therefore, he sent horses and chariots and a great army to Dothan. And they came by night and to sneak up on him. And they surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man arose early in the morning and he went out, you know, to get water or whatever it is, there was an army surrounding the entire city. And not just an army, but these folks have horses and they have chariots, the equivalent Old Testament equivalent of tanks. And and so his servant then came to Elisha and said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Translation, we're dead. We're surrounded. I mean, there's a gigantic military force out there and he's absolutely uh, terrified. Now, this servant that speaks to Elisha, it's not Gehazi. Gehazi would have probably been retired from being Elisha's servant by virtue of his leprosy. So this is a, a different servant servant. And so he looks at it into the natural eye. It looks like they're all doomed. They're all going to be slaughtered by this military force. And so then Elisha answered and said, do not fear. Well, that's a great that's a great word for the moment. But uh, could you give me, oh, not ten good reasons why I shouldn't fear for my life at the moment. How about one? And so he does that. Do not fear. And then he says four. That's a reason word. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and he said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see, may truly see. Listen, our physical reality and circumstances, our physical circumstances are a reality for us. There's no doubt about it. But it is not our highest reality. It is not the highest reality concerning planet Earth, period, and certainly isn't the highest reality related to any Christian. The greater reality, the overruling reality for the child of God is what is happening in the spiritual realm around the physical that I see. The physical tells me something, but it tells me very little. It doesn't tell me enough to act upon, and it certainly doesn't tell me enough to become fearful over until I know, Lord, what is it that is happening here in this situation? Would you let me see what it is that you're doing? And once we have that spiritual insight, a revelation from God to what is happening, not only in the physical, but in the spiritual, now we understand. What's really happening here? And when we as Christians understand what is happening in the spiritual, in the light of the promises of God's word, we always will realize there is no cause for fear. And so he gives the prayer. My servant only sees a tenth of the picture. Open his eyes that he may truly see what is happening. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw And what did he see? And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire (laughs) all around Elisha. They've come to take him. And then as his eyes are opened up to the spiritual realm, it's not a case of alas, we're doomed. It's a case of alas, they're doomed. I think it's very important. I don't know that the Lord will always do it. The Lord does it in this circumstance, for sure. Sometimes he'll have us walk purely by faith and he won't give us this revelation. But I think it's always very good when we look, find ourselves in a physical circumstance that terrifies us. As we would look at it just purely in the physical. And there's plenty of that that happens in this fallen world that we live in. Then then just ask God by his Holy Spirit to stop us at that moment and remind us to ask him, Lord, would you show me the true picture of what's happening here right now? And I can't understand the true picture of what's happening here right now till you show me what you're doing 
and what resources you have dedicated to the situation. And of course, we turn to the Bible and God's promises to understand what it is, the resources, the commitment, the outcome of any circumstance we're in to find it described there. The Bible says concerning every one of us as Christians that each of us has at least one angel that is committed to us, a ministering spirit. The Bible says the writer of the book of Hebrews sent to minister to the heirs of salvation. So there's at least one angelic being. And one of the things that I love, I just finished a while back reading through the book of Revelation. And one of the things I love about the book of Revelation is reading about the angels one foot on the earth, one foot on the sun. <laughs> Come on. I mean, you don't need any superheroes when you've got angels like this that God can dispatch these created beings. So each one of us has at least one angel that is committed to us at any given point in time in our lives. And as whatever happens in our lives, God can dispatch however many angels that he wants to in any situation that we're in, so that we're never outnumbered, we're never overwhelmed by anything that is happening around us physically. But even more, and gives a greater comfort to me than anything that I might know about angels, is the Bible teaches that the Lord is with us. Jesus said concerning the Great Commission, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The writer of the book of Hebrews again said, that he'll never leave us and he'll never forsake us. The Lord is always with us. And so our eyes to be opened up to those resources and how often God will give us a understanding of what what he is up to in a situation or take us to scriptures, his promises that remind us of that. And I think it's important to do that. Lord, we're overwhelmed. This is a cause of great fear. Would you show me what you're doing? And so the Assyrians, they came down to him. They make their attack against Elisha, fully convinced they're going to effortlessly take him. And Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, strike these, this people, I pray, with blindness. Or you can have all the chariots you want. All the weaponry you want. You can be ma massive in terms of numbers, but a soldier without sight is uh, going to have some difficulty. And so the Lord struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Now, so not, it's not like, um, you know, the king of Syria put together like a blind regiment who's been blind from birth and now they're going out and they're accustomed to blindness. This has happened in an instant. You can imagine the panic that it puts them into, turn them into little kittens. And so Elisha then said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. This isn't who, you know, what you're looking for. Follow me and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. But he then led them to Samaria, the capital of Israel. Now, they had come for to, to arrest Elijah. And so some, you can look at this and say, is he fibbing there? And in verse 19, saying, listen, I'll lead, uh, you know, you're not real. I'll lead you to the man you're looking for, knowing that he was the man they were looking for. Now, because what Elijah is doing here is he knows that the king of Syria has sent these troops in order to get rid of him because the king knows he's got to get rid of Elisha so that he can ultimately take out the king of Israel and conquer the land of Israel. So Elisha knows the guy, you're, what the, the whole thing that this is all really about is the king of Israel. And let me lead him, uh, lead you to him. And so it was with it when they had come to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and there they were inside the capital city uh, of Israel. So you can imagine uh, how alarming that must have been for them. I mean, beat them, bust them, that's our custom. Goo, beat them, bust them. I mean, they, this is just going to be the easiest victory. Don't think we don't remember those yells. So this is going to be the easiest victory that they could ever have. And now their eyes are opened and they're trapped within the capital, the walls of the capital city of, of Israel. And when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, he said, my father, shall I kill him? 
Shall I kill them? A little eagerness here. When you repeat yourself like that. She wants to wipe them out. Elisha said, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those who you've taken captive with your sword and your, your bow? You don't kill captives in a military campaign. And anyway, they're not your prisoners. These are the Lord's prisoners. And here's what the Lord wants you to do. Set food and water before them. And, they, and these guys have to be thinking they're going to kill us for sure. And so they have a barbecue. They put food and water in front of them that they may eat and drink and uh, feed them and, and sustain them and, and let them return to their master. And so he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and they drank, uh, he sent them away and they went to their master. And so the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. And so here is this uh, situation where the Bible talks about not repaying evil for evil, but repaying good for evil, which is done here. And this good deed that had been done to them when they went back to the king and reported. I mean, we were at their mercy. They could have just killed every one of us, but they didn't. Here's how they treated us, that that kindness did have an, a, an effect on them for a time. And uh uh, and, and they no longer made these kind of raids into the land of Israel. Now, what kind of a gap there is between verses 23 and 24, we don't know. But there is a considerable gap because as we get to verse 24, uh, Ben-Hadad, uh, the king of Syria, he now uh, heads into another mode and he is going to become aggressive in his attempt to uh, take over Israel. And it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, he gathered all of his army and he went up and he besieged Samaria, again, the capital uh, of the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, now, the purpose of a siege in those days, uh, so uh, obviously the king of Israel, he's confronted by this great military force of Syria. He believes he cannot defeat that military force in the field. So he went behind the walled city of Samaria in order to put up a defense. And now the siege begins. And the siege in the ancient world was you would set up your military all the way around the city. No going out, no coming in, no food, no water. And you would basically wait until the population within the city would run out of food, run out of water, uh, then begin uh, in their starvation mode. Uh, disease would then set in and then you would wait and wait them out until they surrendered. And it wasn't unusual for sieges to last anywhere between a year, three years, depending on the food supply and water supply within the city. And so that's what they're doing. They want to conquer the city now without a fight by starving them uh, to death. And there was a great famine uh, in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it there in uh, the city of Samaria because of the famine because of the siege. And indeed they besieged it long enough until a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver. Now, I don't know what you'd pay for a donkey head to eat. But when times were good in Samaria, nobody ate the donkey heads. These were the parts that you threw away. But they're so starving within the city that not only are they willing to eat donkey heads, but they are willing to pay a high price to get a hold of one and boil it and bake it and fry it and do anything they can with that animal to eat it. You say, can it get worse? Yes. One-fourth of a cab of dove droppings was selling for five shekels of silver. And so people were craving any kind of food or any kind of nourishment at all. Now, there's some scholars who believe that the uh, reference here to the dove uh, droppings, that this is a reference to um, some kind of a... Uh, a bulb of, of an herb plant, some kind of a wild plant in Israel, and uh, you'd uproot it, and there would be little white balls of uh, of this, and and you know hardly good for sustaining nutrition and life and all, but they were willing to eat anything. But uh, you know, candidly, uh, you know that may very well be true, but it's also. Uh, could be the fact that they were eating dove droppings because it represented some manner of nutrition, even as it had 
pastor the bird, and I'm not intending to get any more graphic than that, but uh, times are rough in some area as a result of the siege. But it gets worse. And then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, so he's walking along that wall that separates him from their enemy, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my Lord, O king. And he cried out to her, If the Lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? You're asking me for help? You're asking me for food? What we need is a miracle of God. And he's kind of being sarcastic. She calls out for help and he says, in essence, he says, Oh, right, I'll head right down to the bakery and get you a loaf of bread and down into the cellar and get you a bottle of wine. What are you coming to me for help? We're all starving to death. And then the woman, then the king, after he kind of gets this off of his chest, he said to her, what's troubling you? And she answered, this woman said to me, so both of them are present before him, give your son that we may eat him today and then we'll eat my son tomorrow. And so we boiled my son and we ate him yesterday and I said to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him. But now she's hidden her son. They had entered into a pact, these two women, to eat their two sons on two successive days. Probably babies or probably small children. And her boy, she'd been faithful to the bargain and uh, had killed her child. And then they ate, boiled the boy and then they ate the boy. And the following day, when it was her friend's turn now to cook her son, she had hidden him. And here you have mothers reduced to animals, reduced to cannibalism. The interesting thing to me about her complaint is that she is not upset at all over the fact that they're boiling and eating their children. She's upset that she got gypped out of the meal of this other woman's son. God had warned the children of Israel in the law that if you move away, even as my people, if you move away from obedience to my word, you will end up eating your children in order to sustain yourself in the sieges and the difficulty that will come your way. I am afraid, in a sanctified sense, of what any of us are capable of in the wrong place at the wrong time, the wrong circumstance, as descendants of Adam and Eve. And God spoke to the children of Israel, and He spoke about the fathers during this very kind of incident, that the day would come in which they would take their children, and they would cook their children, and eat their children, and keep the nourishment that they were eating from the rest of the family. They would eat the child in secret. That the most cultured of the Jewish women, the most nicely dressed in normal circumstances and the beautiful jewelry and the fine conducting of themselves in the culture. And they minced their feet when they walked and all of this description that God gives. He said, the day will come if you turn away from my word. And you begin to bear the consequences of living in disobedience to me and the cruelness of this world. That those women that look so civilized as if it could not be in their heart. This is an impossibility. They will not do it. He said they will give birth. They will take their placenta, their afterbirth. They will hide themselves in another room and eat it so they don't have to share it with the family. What we are capable of. Apart from God is a scary thing. I look at the world that we live in. It's not getting better. And I'm not talking about economics and all these other things. It's because people are not getting better. And all of the 
clamor and the cry for more liberty and more wickedness and more sin. And I think to myself, because I have eyes that are opened by the grace of God and the spirit of God. And I think to myself, how far can you take people down this path before they will go over a line and they will do stuff that will shock you in mass? It's a dangerous thing. To turn away from God's standard of His Word. It protects us from us. Not only from other people. Horrifying what they were capable of doing and what they ended up doing. And because of their deliberate disobedience to God and their apostasy. Someone might say, Boy, I hope we never become like that as a nation. We're already like that as a nation. We already live in a country to our shame. Where parents are willing to sacrifice their children in order to satisfy their own fleshly appetites. That was happening there. That happens today. The single great example of it. Has legalized abortion in the United States of America. And I'm sure that these two women, when they talked about killing their babies and cooking them for a meal, had a justification for it. They're going to die anyway. We're the only ones that have hope of outliving this circumstance. And so since they're going to die anyway, I mean, we might as well go ahead and kill them and lengthen our life. I mean, some good will come out of it. The capacity that we have for justification. And I look at the whole argument related to abortion today in our nation. Every child a wanted child. <laughs> Excuse me, I'd like to see life. I'd like to see a birth. Put me out on the street, let me be grabbed up by someone, but let me survive the womb. But that's, that, that's the whole, all of the arguments that are given for the justification of this legal right in the United States of America. It's, they're no less flimsy, no less the arguments of monsters today than what was happening 3,000 years ago, the children of Israel. Now, I know in a room like this, and I am very sorry for it, that in a room where hundreds of people are in here, that abortion is in the past of many, many people, both men and women. But if we bypass every passage in the Scripture that has to do with something that's current, because of that, then we won't speak about any sin, because we all come from a background of some sin. But it's important for us to know, related to this issue of abortion, that as long as that is a legal right in any country, including the United States of America, we will deserve every bit of judgment that God pours out upon us and more. But I think about this whole thing now of what's even happened in my lifetime, where the fleshly appetites of the parents are now elevated among the children. And when I was a boy, parents laid their lives down for their children, not all of them, but that was the pressure in the culture. That was the norm in the culture. You had marriages stay together for the sake of the children. That happened. That happened a lot. The children were more important than the parents in the minds of the parents. And now the whole thing flips around and it's all about the parents and the children are just left to become casualties of physical appetites. And I think it's a good warning, not just to the world, but it's a good warning to us as Christians What's in us? It's in us apart from God. And it's the Word of God that keeps us safe for our families, 
for our children, for ourselves, for our church, for the world. And again, what we're capable of, horrifyingly capable of, apart from that. And I read stuff like this, and I don't know, I don't know how pure your heart is, but I read stuff like this, and, and, and I don't doubt one single bit about it concerning myself, or concerning you, or this world as a whole. Praise the Lord for His commandments and His Word, and the privilege of being able to obey His Word. And what it protects us from, and those that we love from. And it happened when the king heard the words of the woman, that he tore his clothes. And the news just rocked even him, and he's a wicked man. And as he passed by on the wall, the people looked, and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body, a symbol of mourning. He would have, would have been better to have repented and not had sackcloth on than to have sackcloth on and not repent. The man never repented. And he said, God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today, I'm going to kill that prophet who's inside this city. So he... He's angry at God, but he can't get to God. But he, so he's going to go after the closest thing to God he knows, and that is God's prophet, Elisha. So he says, this guy's a dead man. I'm going to kill him. But Elisha was sitting in his house. The elders were sitting with him, probably praying. And the king set a man ahead of him in order to kill Elisha. But before the messenger came to Elisha, he said to the elders, again, this is a very difficult man to sneak up on because God says a lot of stuff to him. He said, do you see how this son of a murderer, and the king, the king was a son of Ahab who was a murderer. You see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? He sent someone to kill me. Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door, hold him fast at the door. Don't let him in because his master's feet are right behind him. His master's right behind him. What I want to say to him, I want to say to both of them. And while he was still talking with them, there was the messenger coming down to him. And then the king said, surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Apparently... Elisha had spoken to the king and informed him that he was not to surrender to the Syrians, but that God would deliver them and, despite their wickedness and their sin. And so here is the king. He looks at it and he says, I'm, I'm done waiting on God. I, I want to kill you. I want to surrender to the Syrians and get some food in all of our bellies. So he's, he's done waiting uh, on on the Lord. And then Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. In other words, he prophesies that within 24 hours, the siege is going to be over. There's going to be plenty to eat. A seah was uh, seven quarts of flour, that's going to sell for a shekel. Two seahs, about 13, 14 quarts of barley would sell for a shekel. In other words, they'd be able to buy six times as much food for one-fifth of the cost. Now you think about hearing that promise from God. You say, how in the world is that going to happen? We don't even have enough strength to leave this city, much less to engage that army and defeat it and to get these kind of stores. It just seemed like an impossibility. And one man in particular staggered at the promise of God. And an officer on whose hand the king leaned, his right-hand man, he answered the man of God. And he not only was unbelieving, he, just, he scorned this word from the Lord, the promise of God. And he said, look... If the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? In other words, if God took and, and if there were windows in heaven and he began to just pour grain out through those windows right down to the ground below, I mean, could that, 
it would take all of that and more for this promise to be fulfilled. This is an impossibility, what you're saying here. And Elisha said, it's not, it's not a small thing to, to scorn God's promises and his word. And he said, in fact, you'll see the fulfillment of this prophecy with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And if the man had any spiritual discernment, he would realize that Elisha was prophesying uh, his death. Now, there were four lepers, leprous men at the entrance of the gate to the city. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here till we die? Now, if you thought it was tough inside the city, it was harder on lepers. They weren't allowed in the city because they were lepers. And lepers in those days were dependent upon, in terms of food, the garbage and the scraps that would be thrown over the wall of the city for them to eat. By the time you're eating donkey heads and you're eating dove dung, there's nothing coming over the wall. So these guys are in an absolutely desperate strait. And they know that they're about to die even sooner than those that are dying within the city. And so they looked at one another and they said, why are we sitting here until we die? And I, I love that verse three, because it's a great question, not just for them, but for all of us. Why am I sitting here until I die? Any life that is not engaged, any Christian life, any life period, but any life that is not engaged in the advancement of God's work in his kingdom in this world is a life that is just sitting around waiting to die. It's a wasted life. Any life that does not ultimately hear from God, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord at the end of a meaningful life of serving and walking with God. That's a wasted life. And so they look at it and, and say, why do we wait here until we die? And then they begin to weigh out their options. If we say we'll enter into the city. Well, the famine's in the city. We'll just move in there to die. Option number two, if we sit here, then we're going to die. And now, therefore, option number three, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. And if they keep us alive, then we live. And if they kill us, option number four or five, if they kill us, we shall only die. So they, they, they sit down. God bless them. I love them. I see myself in all of this. And they, they sit down and say, all right, all right, we've got our four lepers here. This is the this is the think tank of leprosy in Israel. All right, let's figure out what are all of our options. Well, we've got to drink a And that's it. That's the four that we're going to have to choose from. They're going to find out God has a completely different thing in mind that they couldn't even dream of. They couldn't even ask or think of. You ever sit down? And I know you do because you're like me. All right, God. Here's your four options. Is there one, two, three, and four? And you just tell me which one of those you, you're going to do, and I'm okay with it. Don't be going off my list. I figured this all out, and so no need for you to add any brain work to this. So you just tell me which one of these is. And we think this whole thing, even tonight, you may be sitting in a situation like this. So it's got to go this way or it's got to go that way. And in 48 hours, God does something and he brings something into the equation and into your reality that you could have never dreamed had a possibility of being an option. That's the way it is with him. So God bless them. This is what they're thinking of. These are what they think their options are. At least they're thinking. They're not they're wanting to take a shot at something. And so they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. All right. Don't read the next verse. You're a starving Leper, you're going into the camp of the Syrians. 
They're going to kill us or they're going to feed us. But we're going to know our future one way or another right now. And they walk into the camp and it is completely deserted. Oh, man, I, you, you get excited. Say, which one of these tents has the apple pies? For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. They were in that encampment and they start to hear chariots and noise and an army approaching. God just does this, just puts this thing in their ears. Maybe a heavenly host. He just puts it in everybody's ears. They hear this great army now that's coming upon them. They said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. And therefore they arose. They fled at twilight. They left the camp intact. All the fires are burning. The tables all set with food, their tents, their horses, their donkeys. They fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and they ate and they drank. You just picture the four of them. They're all buddies, you know, in this common experience. And I mean, there's drumsticks on the table. And there's bread and there's this and all of this food and there's sauces for dipping in. And they go into the one camp and they begin to eat and to drink. And then not only that, but they begin to carry from the tent silver and gold and clothing that's been completely abandoned. And they go and they find rocks or caves or holes to dig to put all of the gold and the silver and the clothes in. And then huffing and puffing, they come back and they entered then into another tent and they carried away some from there also and they went and hid it. I mean, this is like, I don't know what the equivalent is for a woman, but I think every guy that's, in, that's been a boy, this is like a dream to stumble on something like this. Of course, you're going to gorge yourself and then take everything you can, you know, and, and uh, these things that you dream about having and it could never have had and what has fallen onto our laps here. And then before they go to a third tent, so pretty quickly, they said to one another, we're not doing right. Their conscience is smitten. They said this day is a day of good news. You should circle those two words, good news, at least in your mind. This is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. And they realized if we spend the whole night just eating all of this food and or the whole time eating all of this food and hiding all of this, pretty soon they're going to find out that the Syrians have left and that we knew for hours or we knew for days previous while people needlessly died in the city. And they'll come down on us pretty hard for that. And so they said, now let's go and tell the king's household. In other words, this good news was to be shared. They felt guilty if they didn't share that good news. And, of course, the words good news, that's in the New Testament, that's the word gospel. The word gospel means good news. It means great news. And so the parallels related to the gospel that we preach, the good news that we possess of the forgiveness of sin, an abundant life and a relationship with God, here they are in their conscience feeling we'll be doing wrong if we don't share the blessings that we have stumbled on by a miracle and the grace of God with those that are equally in need with these riches. Beautiful parallels in terms of the spiritual things of sharing the spiritual truths in our living death, a spiritual death before we come to know Christ wouldn't be right to know what we know and experience without telling people the good news of salvation in Christ. And so they went and they called to the gatekeepers of the city and they told them, saying, we went to the Syrian camp and surprisingly, a gift for understatement, 
No one was there. Not a human sound. Only horses and donkeys tied and tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out and they told it to the king's household inside. And so the king arose in the night and he said to his servants, let me now tell you what the Syrians have done. They know we're hungry. They know we're starving to death in here. And so they've gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying that when we come out of the city and we begin to gorge ourselves on the food, they'll catch us out in the open and, and, and then uh, destroy us and get into the city. This whole thing's a trap. And one of the servants, uh, God bless um, advisors to the boss, <laughs> he They're all dying in that city. And he's just thinking, can we try? Can we investigate this a little bit instead of writing this off as an ambush? So he answered and he said, please, let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city. Look, that they they may either become like all the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed, I say, they may become like all the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. So let us send them, send out some spies, send out someone to investigate this report and, and to see what's really happening. And therefore they took two chariots with horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army, saying, Go and see. And they went after them to the Jordan, 25 miles. Those chariots went down the road. And all 25 miles, they found the road was full of garments and weapons which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So they think they're about to be attacked. They're trying to lighten their load in any way to run for their lives. They're throwing it all by the wayside. And so the messengers returned and told the king, And then the people went out and they plundered the tents of the Syrians. And so a seah of fine wheat was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now, the king had appointed the officer on whose hand he had leaned to have charge of the gate. This is the guy that says, ah, if windows were open in heaven, could such a thing be? So the king places this man to control the gate so that there'll be an orderly uh, movement of the people out of the city, out into the camp. So he puts this man between thousands and thousands of starving people and tables full of food. (laughs) Thanks, boss. So he put him in charge of the gate, but as the people just began in their desperation to run through, they trampled him in the gate, and he died, just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. And so it happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two seahs of barley for a shekel, and a seah of fine flour for a shekel, and shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. God's promises are always true. And then that officer had answered the man of God and said, Now look, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And that's exactly what happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate. He saw it. And, of course, this is the whole issue of faith. If I look at God's promises with unbelief, It never affects God's faithfulness to his promises. His promises will always come to pass. What will always be affected is my ability to enjoy the fulfillment of that prophecy or receive the blessing that a position of faith would have received related to the promise. So this is a man. He elevated his noggin above the word of God. And we're prone to do the same thing, to take some promise of God's word related to a situation in our life and to say that can never come to pass. I know a little bit about this. I know a little bit about medicine. I know a little bit about the human body. I know a little bit about the economy. I know a little bit about human relationships. I know a little bit about mental illness. 
And we elevate all of these kind of things against the promises of God. And it's an indication that we're worshiping our mind, which is a very, very small, feeble thing to worship rather than worshiping the Lord. And to spend all of my life, maybe a Christian, absolutely on my way to heaven one day, I will stand on that glassy sea and I will throw my crown down before the Lord, perhaps. Someone might be in that place tonight. There's no doubt that you're saved. But how you treat the promises of God and the commands of God will determine the quality of of the life that you enjoy now and the degree to which you experience the blessings of the fulfillment of his promises. And it's so easy to fall into that place where I remember years and years and years ago when I counseled this one woman and she was laying the situation out and it wasn't an easy situation. Uh, Most situations in counseling are not easy. Life isn't easy in this world. And I began to explain. I felt very kindly and gently. I'm more gentle in person. (laughs) Somebody enjoyed that too much over here. No, here, I'm violating my own thing that I'm saying here. And I began to explain. This is what God says that you need to do in your situation. And she looked at me and she said, that's the Bible. This is real life. And that exists in the human heart. People of God, more than sometimes we're willing to admit. The Bible is going to have the final say on everything in our lives. Because God's reputation is wrapped up in his word. And so, valuable lesson. So much of what we learn in life is not just lessons that are learned by people who do the right thing and we see the wonderful ending to it. All of life is teaching all of the time. All of life, I don't care where you look in life, all of life teaches the veracity or the truthfulness of the Word of God if we just look at it and learn what it's saying. Whether on the side of blessing that comes with obedience or the side of cursing, And difficulty that comes with disobedience. And so here we see this man who so limited himself because he would not believe in the promises of God. And so we allow it to search our hearts and not allow some area of expertise in our life to dismiss the word of God as simplistic. If there were windows in heaven, could God supply? And this kind of thing that can sometimes come out of our heart. but to submit it to the Word of God and to learn the lesson even from his failure here, which is why it's recorded in the Scriptures. Tonight we want to partake of the Lord's Supper as a part of our evening. So if the worship team would come forward and the men who are going to serve the Lord's Supper tonight would come forward.